Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. My name is Brandon J. Fedor, and I'm your host. This week, I spoke with Amir Eshel about his recently published book, Futurity, Contemporary Literature and the Quest for the Past. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will as well. Today, I'm speaking with Amir Eshel about his book, Futurity, Contemporary Literature and the Quest for the Past. Dr. Eshel, thanks for, for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Eschel, as a way uh, to sort of get into the interview, if you'd like to give the listeners any information on your background, your academic career, anything that you think is important in understanding you and your work? Absolutely. So I was born and, and raised in Haifa in, in Israel um, and uh, grew up um, living through several Middle Eastern wars. So I think these wars definitely shaped me and my life and the way I view the world. Um, and as I was growing up in Israel and, and going to school, etc., uh, in high school, um, through several teachers who survived the Holocaust, I became um, very interested, or almost obsessed with uh, German history, with European history. And um, the question that puzzled me was uh, trying to understand what happened in Europe uh, around the middle of, of the 20th century. And um, I developed in high school uh, the thought, the fantasy, the hallucination that uh, if I were to study German and perhaps go to Germany, I would be able to explain what happened. Um, and so after completing my military service uh, in Israel, I actually packed two suitcases and went to Germany and uh, began with uh, learning the language, which was something that uh, was not possible to do in Israel when I grew up. And um, spent a year in southern Germany, in, in Augsburg and Munich, and then later on moved uh, to Hamburg and completed there my um, 
what was then called Magister, that was the first uh, degree, and then followed immediately uh, with a dissertation. Um, and um, tried my best to answer the question that puzzled me in high school, but discovered as years went by that uh, not only I'm unable to answer the question, uh, I only have new and, and more questions than I had originally. So the pursuit of, of the question became sort of a life task to try to understand how how is it possible, how was it possible, and how is it possible that humans do the kind of awful things that Germans did to Jews uh, to each other. Um, and I would I would say that this question is is still the question that haunts this book, Futurity. Hmm. Okay, so if you that that was sort of my 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 transition question is uh, what is what do you think drove you to write this book? What brought you to this specific topic? And you think that your fascination with uh, explaining the Holocaust and that sort of banality of evil that that's what brought you to this book. I think originally, uh, I would say yes. Uh, so trying to explain, trying to grasp, trying to make sense of it. And uh, I believe that in the course of, of thinking about this book and then writing, uh, my my question shifted from, uh, from this question to a somewhat different one. Namely, uh, why the past? Why do uh, we take interest in the past? Why should we care about the past? What is it that we're looking for when we engage the past? Um, And I could tell you even that in a very biographical manner, this shift that I just described, it came out of a conversation I had with uh, Richard Rorty um, here at Stanford. Uh, I'll never forget it. Nice lunch conversation with, with Rorty in which I told him what I'm working on and he was very curious um, colleague uh, so he asked me uh, somewhat puzzled you know why why the past why retrospection why should we be so obsessed with horrible things that, that humans did to each other and why is it important in the first place and, and as I was sort of mumbling my way through trying to answer Rorty's question, I understood that uh, my way of thinking about about the topic uh, has some fundamental flaws and that I need to rethink my, my point of departure and um, try maybe to first answer the question, yeah, why the past? Why why should we be interested in, in the past? And back then, you know, while I had, you know, while I had this lunch conversation with Rorty, I was, you know, steeped in um, what I think is still uh, sort of the leading paradigm in trying to answer this question, namely psychoanalytic discourse, thinking that the past matters and we should take interest in the past because of uh, the traumas of history, because of the, the scars that... Um, man-made catastrophes live uh, in our lives, both individually and collectively. Um, but Rorty's uh, question prompted me to, to question this, this paradigm and question the, the, the kind of heuristic devices we, we develop uh, coming out of psychoanalysis. And um, I found myself more and more exploring um, the past, not just because of its uh, retrospective value, 
but more for its uh, prospective value, or what I was now increasingly calling prospective value, which is uh, how do we use the past pragmatically, practically, in order to solve problems we face. So um, instead of just asking what kind of a, you know, a traces and, and scars the past leaves, to ask also what kind of you know, productive elements do we pull out of the past and in what ways do we use the past in order to uh, reshape ourselves both individually and, and uh, collectively. Hmm. Well, it, it seems pretty clear getting into the book that this is sort of um, kind of like uh, it's rooted in, in your personal history because the two sort of uh, historical events that you choose to examine um, – the literature surrounding those two events is the Holocaust and the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Um, and, I, I, you know, I was interested. I've, I've definitely been interested in the Holocaust and Holocaust studies for a long time. But your book really kind of, uh, you know, made me think about how the Holocaust is, I mean, it, it was maybe the seminal, you know, catastrophe in the 20th century and how, you know, we continuously come back to it. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, a lot of the, the discourse is kind of surrounding that question of how do we make sense of how this happened? How could this happen? Why did this happen? Um, but I just was wondering if maybe as a way to get into the book, if you could talk about beyond like the personal connection uh, that you may, may have with the Holocaust. I'm curious, what, what do you think makes the Holocaust such like this, this central point? In, in 20th century philosophy, theory? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, that the Holocaust uh, displays uh, the most extreme case to date of, of what I call in the book man-made catastrophes or genocide in this specific case. But in my view, um, you know, the Holocaust is just just with or without quotation marks, the most extreme case. But what's puzzling is that uh, before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust, we encounter uh, cases of, of genocide or catastrophes uh, of perhaps a lesser scale that uh, display to us what humans are, are capable of. Um, the kind of um, a brutal, blind, technologically uh, enabled um, killing that we saw uh, in the Holocaust is, you know, uh, reflected in that event in the most stark manner. But uh, there are numerous other cases that one can point to uh, in which the same kind of rationale, the same kind of logic, the same kind of technology is used in the production of death uh, on a scale uh, that's that's uh, quite quite devastating or, or awful. Uh, we just had a conference here at Stanford last week on on conscience, and the filmmaker uh, Anna Guion was here and presenting her work on uh, Rwanda. And she was talking about what brought her to, to go to Rwanda and, and work on the Rwandan genocide, also talking about her father and the fact that her father survived the Holocaust. And I found many similarities uh, between her approach to the topic and what drove me to, to think about it, namely that um, the Holocaust, to a certain extent, is our point of departure just because of the depth and, and, and the radicality of the event. But... Um, 
the question that the Holocaust raises is a much broader one. Uh, and I think it's a question we're still grappling with because uh, long after the Holocaust, we experienced cases of genocide. Uh, and still we humans, you know, uh, stood uh, stood beside or stood, uh, you know, vis-a-vis these events and failed to react to them accordingly. So in other words, you know, the Holocaust could be seen as, as a touchstone or the most radical case of what Hayden White calls, you know, modernist events. Um, so for us, it's it's really our duty, I think, is to study the event in order to understand the whole variety of other events that occurred uh, before but also uh, after the Holocaust. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, this this concept of futurity obviously is uh, you, you, uh, a main focus in the book, and I feel like what sort of may help listeners understand what you mean by the concept of futurity, futurity uh, throughout the book, you kind of uh, have Benjamin and Arendt's notion of history kind of circling in the background. Uh, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that a little bit, kind of like the theoretical uh, foundation for this concept and where you're coming from theoretically and maybe talk about the uh, what you take from Arendt and Benjamin, because I think those two are the, the biggest influences that I could tell in the book. Yes, absolutely. So uh, maybe we should begin by by uh, juxtaposing the two of them, uh, mm. Benjamin and, and Arendt, um, because for me, the two represent almost two alternative approaches to man-made catastrophes uh, and, and how we make sense of them or react to them. Uh, so Benjamin, in his thesis on the philosophy of, of history, uh, something he was writing at the worst moment of his personal history and, and perhaps European modern history um, when um, the fate of Europe looked uh, looked very uh, dim and, and, and gloomy and almost impossible. And Benjamin in this uh, work is thinking about uh, time and history in Hegelian uh, terms, um, very deterministic terms in my view. Um, ultimately expressing uh, the view that um, our only hope of getting out of the contingency of our time, our only hope of uh, moving beyond the catastrophe of our age, is by a hope for a coming of the Messiah, some kind of a messianic explosion that will catapult us uh, outside time into what will hopefully be a more humane future. Um, so he wrote this beautiful piece to which I come back time and again in the course of my life in, in scholarship. Um, and he left it with us as, um, you know, what, what you call in German Denkfigur, a way of, of thinking about the world, a perspective on the world. Um, Arendt, on the other hand, writing and, and developing her thinking uh, after the war, I think moved in a, in a somewhat different uh, direction and a direction I find to be very inspiring in conjunction with my book. Namely saying that uh, the only lesson uh, we can take from the kind of dark moments Benjamin was referring to or thinking through uh, in his work, the only way to move beyond that 
is to go back to um, what she calls natality uh, coming from from St. Augustine, namely uh, the fact that we as humans are born into the world and as creatures of birth, uh, we are doomed to act in the world and begin a new time and again. Uh, regardless uh, the dire consequences we encounter uh, when we act in the world. For Arendt, concluding uh, her book, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, every end point also signals the beginning of something new. So because we are creatures of birth, because we are creatures of natality, which she calls natality, we are capable always of beginning anew. And she ties this notion of natality and the capacity of humans to begin anew to her idea of human agency and and action. She sees us humans as being doomed to or being fated to take action, namely political action. And for her, the lesson coming out of the events of of around the mid-20th century, around totalitarianism, both in the context of German history and the context of Russian history, the lesson we should take is um, to go back to politics and to acknowledge the fact that we are creatures of birth, that we are creatures of action, that in order to uh, move beyond the end points of history, uh, we have the duty to engage politically and to take action. So it's, it doesn't make uh, sense or it may be even perilous to wait for a coming messiah, to hope for a messianic rupture in the Benjamin, in the Benjaminian sense. Uh, for our end, what we need to do is, is give up on this messianic fantasy um, and uh, in a very mundane and daily manner uh, engage in the business uh, of politics. And I find this line of thought to be both incredibly productive when we think about literature, culture, and the arts, but also when we think about uh, the role of of scholars and uh, intellectuals in the public sphere. Uh, This is something, you know, we can talk about maybe in conjunction with the second part of my book, namely when I turn to the ways in which Hebrew literature dealt with 1948 and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Hmm. Well, one thing that I found really interesting, I had never come across this uh, quote from Arendt, was it's in the introduction um, where she talks about the fact that, and I I, I don't know if I understood this uh, 100%, but she talks about the fact that every man, every you know man and woman, every birth is beginning, is future. And I thought that that was really interesting, her way of looking at that, that... Uh, that with every new person, there's basically a new, a new chance, a new reality uh, brought into the world. Um, yeah, indeed. And yeah, I thought that was interesting because you know I feel like it relates to what you're getting at in the book with the 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 concept of futurity and trying to leave the reader with a sense that you know history isn't these events that have happened that, you know, were passive kind of like victims or spectators um, to or of, but that, you know, we have the ability to make a new, you know, a new reality or assume a new subjective position in, you know, you know a- any instant in, in yeah. reading literature, like the, the literature that you point out. I just thought that yeah. was really fascinating. 
you know, for, for uh, Arendt or the way I read Arendt, um, futurity and vitality and human agency uh, are not just a, you know, mere lofty hopes or sort of an optimistic way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for her, uh, it's really uh, our, uh, how shall I put it, you know, it's, it's our duty to accept our responsibility. In other words, the fact that we are uh, capable of action, the fact of, of our natality, the fact that we're being born into the world and are doomed to act in the world is, is actually something that we call, you know, responsibility. In other words, um, you know, one could think of my book as a book about a temptation. And the temptation is to look at man-made catastrophes, such as the Holocaust, but not only the Holocaust, um, as events that uh, display human history to us as a, a circumstance we can do nothing about. So here we are, small, you know, insignificant humans confronted with such huge events, um, events that are engendered by political powers uh, we cannot do anything about, and we are just uh, subjects uh, in in a game or objects almost in a game we have no role in. So the temptation is to think of ourselves as as endowed with no agency or no capacity to act. And here comes Arendt and says that this is nothing but a, a temptation. This thought is nothing but a temptation. Um, and we should, rather than succumb to this temptation, we should rather understand that uh, our situation is quite different, that even in the most dire circumstances, humans are still capable of different modes of action, small actions, larger actions. Um, and the problems begin once we succumb to the temptation and give up on action, once we think of ourselves as insignificant uh, you know, objects of the great game of history. Um, this is how, by the way, Arendt understands uh, what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, in a famous interview she conducted uh, with uh, Gauss, uh, she talks about um, what was the most difficult um, experience for her uh, having lived through the rise of Nazis uh, to power. And she tells Gauss in this interview that for her, the most difficult experience was not necessarily that Hitler assumed power and not necessarily bad things that happened to Jews around her and to others around her. The worst thing she experienced was the way in which people around her, Germans around her, succumbed to the system. Uh, avoided the duty to do something uh, about what the political system, the Nazi political system, engaged in. Um, her worst experience was what what's called in German the Gleichschaltung, the way in which everybody uh, were willing, you know, Germans were willing to um, to basically collaborate with the system rather than assuming their um, their ability to act and and. Uh, doing what was needed uh, uh, to, to, to be done in the 1930s. And, and I think that um, these things that she says in the interview uh, indicate the larger philosophical program that, that she was working on uh, throughout her life and also my source of inspiration for the book, namely that uh, we as creatures of natality, creatures able to act, uh, need to 
take on uh, our responsibility to act rather than succumb to the notion uh, that we are powerless uh, creatures unable to act. You know, my biggest fear um, in terms of, of my book and people reading the book is that people will think that I'm this, you know, optimistic um, Israeli living in California thinking <laughs> that, you know, we just need to look into the future and be, you know, happy about our ability to do all kinds of wonderful things in the future, etc. I think that that would be a, a, a terrible misreading of the book. Mm-hmm. The book is really about a, how daunting it is to be responsible for our lives, to be responsible for our political circumstances, and how literature, in a way, presents to us this daunting responsibility. Mm. Well, yeah, that's funny that you say that about uh, cautioning for misreading, because I actually thought that, uh, you know, I've, I've done some uh, reading in Benjamin and you, the, the theoretical concepts of history, and those are very daunting. Um, and you do feel like you are, you know, you're just uh, an individual, that you have no will, you have no agency. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Histoire du Cinema. Have you seen Yeah, a, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, he was really inspired by Benjamin and his, you know, his notion of montage and how you were able to access, you know, a historical, a fallen historical moment um, yeah. by using montage. And, you know, that theoretically, that sounds amazing. But, you know, where is the, the practical, you know, real... Uh, real application of that. And I felt like after reading your book and, uh, you know, when you come full circle and you talk about Benjamin, especially his concept of history, I feel like you, it made a lot of sense at the end because, you know, it's it's not like you're saying we just need to look, for, uh, you know, at the future. We need to be optimistic. We need to be uh, bright eyed. But it's that by focusing on the past, we're distracted from the present. Yeah. From you know the the here and now, the implications of our actions, what's occurring at the moment, um, and when you juxtapose that with the the image of the angel of history that Benjamin talks about when he's talking about Klee's painting of the the uh, the angel, it just made so much sense because you know the angel constantly has his back to you know what is the future. The future yeah. is just being pro- being propelled forward by you know, the past that is seen as this huge catastrophic event. Um, but I felt that, that that worked really nicely coming full circle back to there and uh, back to Benjamin and the, the angel of history that it made a lot of practical sense, you know, yeah. that yeah. you're not just being, you know, overly optimistic, but you're saying we just need to focus on, you know, we need to, to stop being, you know, in a way slaves to the past and, uh, you know, things that that have already happened. You t- I forget uh, which theorist in particular you talk about in the, the coda, but, you know, he talks about, it might have been Walter Ben Michaels in Shape of the Signifier. Yeah. I think I thought you did a really good job uh, explaining his argument <laughs> because that, that's an interesting book. Uh, but, um, you know, I, he talks about how, you know, by focusing on the past and, you know, in late capitalism that we basically, you know, like you said, we've become sort of like objects or uh, we've kind of lost some agency because, you know, we're focused on there is no truth there. Uh, and I think that you were talking about Austerlitz, too, at that point. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I thought I thought that that was that was really interesting. Um, yeah. 
Okay, well, so maybe as a way to kind of get further into the book, uh, one thing is we talked, so we talked about the Holocaust, and the, the second sort of set uh, body of literature that you discuss uh, it concerns the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, yes. And I thought that that was really interesting because, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't have much uh, experience with Israeli literature. I can't say that I'm that familiar or exposed to it. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, there was so much variety, you know, when it came to discussing the Palestinian conflict. And obviously, today, I feel like this this topic is, you know, even more relevant because there's renewed conflict in that area. Um, yeah. But I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. Obviously, uh your choice to, to examine the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, you know, it would be inspired by your uh, your personal history. But I think it's interesting that those the two main bodies of literature surrounding, you know, two historical events was the Holocaust and the, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So I was wondering if maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I think begin with, you know, from, from a structural or conceptual point of view, what allows me, I believe, to bring uh, the two um, contexts together, so the context of a post-war German literature and the way it deals with the catastrophes of, of German history, including the Holocaust on the one hand, and then a post-1948 Hebrew literature and the way it deals with the events of 1948, with on the one hand the establishment of, of the State of Israel, and on the other hand the, the Nakba. So what brings these two contexts together for me uh, are again man-made catastrophes, how humans act um, in circumstances of, how shall I put it, uh, dire extremity. Um, and what happened in 1948, or among the many things that happened in 1948, is that numerous Palestinians were driven uh, by force into exile. Um, and um, thus began for um, Israeli society and culture on the one hand, and for Israeli literature in a very specific manner, uh, the task and the difficulty of coming to terms with, with that action, with that moment of, of political agency. And um, what I wanted to emphasize is that um, of all um, all sections of Israeli discourse after 1948, so if we think about politics, you know, uh, the humanities, um, history, sociology, uh, etc., um, and obviously the arts and literature. So of all these different discourses of Israeli society and culture, the first one to acknowledge um, those awful things that were done to Palestinians uh, was Hebrew literature. Uh, what I found really striking is that authors, Israeli authors, right after the war, so the first Samech Izhar in 1949, uh, was able to uh, acknowledge uh, the bad things that happened and the awful things that were done and to put it, to put it on the table. And not just to put it on the table as an awful trauma that was a, a caused, but also a, as an event that will continue to haunt a, Israel's present and future should the Israeli state and Israeli society not address the events of 1948. So for authors like Izhar and others I discuss in this part of the book, the issue was not just um, to come to terms with or to deal with awful things that happened with the in the past. The issue was really how to 
change Israeli society and how to force Israeli society to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, by addressing the question of the Palestinian refugees and their future. Um, and this was true in 1948 with the first works that were written on the subject. And it is true until, you know, this very year, uh, this very day we're talking about today in which um, Israeli authors and intellectuals are the first to uh, maintain in the Israeli public sphere uh, the responsibility uh, of the Israeli state, of Israeli society, to do something uh, about a problem they had at least a part in creating in the first place. So for me, um, the second part of the book in which I deal with Hebrew literature and the question of 1948 is a prime example of what futurity, uh, in my view, is namely the ability of, of literature and the arts by turning to the past to engage in contemporaneous in, in, in issues of, of the hour uh, when it comes to politics and to ethics and to uh, allow the readers and to allow uh, more broadly defined the reception community uh, to take political and ethical action in, in the present. And so, in a way, if you read the second part, you can learn a lot about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about Israeli society, etc. But I hope that readers will also uh, take out of it a, also a sense of what literature and the arts are capable of in a futural manner. Um, I hope that they'll see how literature and the arts really allow us to remake ourselves, to reshape ourselves, both in the present and, and in view of uh, the future. And for that, I think Hebrew literature really gives us a, a wonderful uh, example, a very stark and, and, and clear example of the capacity of, of literature and the arts uh, to do something uh, in the world, uh, to use now Arendtian terms, yeah, to do something in the world. Well, it's it's interesting that uh, you know, you talk about how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is still alive today. Like it's still a you know a historical event. It's still something that clearly causes a lot of you know conflict to this very day. Uh, but one thing that I thought was interesting uh, in the book is how you talk about you know f since 1989 and you know uh, Fukuyama's comment, the end of history, and all that. Um, that we sort of moved from from this this writing you know using futurity as a concept around like anchored by a historical event like the holocaust or uh or a similar uh, event that we move from that type of writing to one that you know wasn't anchored by any one particular historical event and that, yeah. that was sort of symptomatic of that kind of transition from this you know war of uh, ideology to you know the postmodern you know you know, post-ideological age, you know. Um, and so I was wondering if you could maybe comment a little bit about that, because I thought that was another interesting kind of, I know that wasn't your main concern in the book, at least I don't think it was, but I thought that it was interesting and I thought that you did a really good job with it because I really couldn't tell exactly where you kind of fell on that spectrum um, mm -hmm. in the way that you kind of view those ideas, the, the end of history, the end of history, the, you know, Zizek and the idea of post ideology. Um, and I, you know, I feel like futurity is a concept uh, that, that I feel like is aimed at sort of getting beyond that, you know? Yeah. Um, definitely. Yeah. But I was just, I was interesting. I was interested to know kind of where you fell on that spectrum and how you approach that. 
Well, I can again begin somewhat, you know, autobiographically by saying that um, one of the things I was reading while writing this book was a, a Fred a, a Jameson's essay um, titled "The End of Temporality." Um, in which he claims that we live in an age in which futurity is liquidated or gone altogether from our lives, that we have no sense of the future. And in this essay, Jameson goes on to say that we live uh, in an age uh, in which we lack historical consciousness and we lost the sense of what may be possible in the future, etc., uh, etc. Et so he reiterates, you know, many of the claims uh, he has made in the course of, of, of the 90s in this essay from 2004. But the one phrase that, that kept me really busy and somewhat troubled is this notion of, um, you know, futurity being liquidated. No, no, no longer do we have a sense of what the future uh, may bring. And I found that uh, anxiety of Jameson reflected um, in the work and thinking of a whole variety of other thinkers uh, on the left, uh, including uh, Ben Michaels and Zizek and Alain Badiou and, and Eagleton and others. Um, and I began writing the third part of the book thinking to myself that um, this line of thought strikes me as possible only if you live in uh, the affluent West and you have a sense that uh, the kind of life that you have, you know, teaching in an elite university um, is is really the kind of life people have uh, around uh, the world. And coming from the Israeli perspective, um, I was really surprised that someone should be worried about, you know, our age as the age in which, you know, people have no historical consciousness uh, and no sense about, you know, what the future may bring. Because I found that uh, I was constantly reading novels that that engage history and engage historical con consciousness and are very worried about past and the ways in which it affects the present. So where does Jameson take this notion that, you know, we live in an age in which futurity is, is gone or liquidated? Um, and um, I tie this sort of uneasiness that I felt in the third part of my book, I tie this to what I see as the inability of writers and thinkers on the left to accept what I see as a fact, namely that after 1989, a certain way of thinking about history um, is over, namely speculative thinking about history or conceiving history with, with capital H. A following or continuing the Hegelian way of thinking about about history. I think this is really uh, over uh, around 1989 and uh, to a certain extent also uh, obsolete. I think we no longer need a capital H history uh, as we engage with political and ethical concerns uh, of our time. Uh, we no longer need the kind of grand thinking about history that uh, characterized uh, our writing um, uh, before 1989. I think what we need much more now are ways of engaging uh, our present and our future in the mundane daily business uh, of politics. Um, and I see this turn to mundane daily business of politics reflected in contemporary literature. So the books I'm dealing with in the third part of of my book are books that in my view, on the one hand, give up on 
capital H history and speculative thinking about history, books that no longer need uh, Hegelian or post-Hegelian thought. Uh, and instead of doing the kind of work that books that are still steeped in the Hegelian tradition do, what the novels I present in part three uh, do uh, turn to issues of agency, of action, of the mundane business of um, of everyday politics. Um, so I have there a variety of novels that I read uh, in that in that specific in that specific uh, vein. And, and um, I think you and I communicated preparing for this interview um, about uh, Salman Rushdie's memoir, uh, Joseph Anton, a book that was obviously written after I was long done with my book. <laughs> but I see uh, Rushdie's uh, memoir as reflecting very well the kind of thinking that uh, I expressed uh, in my own book, namely that... Um, there is a lot of space uh, in our lives today, uh, in culture and in politics, uh, to engage um, historical consciousness or to be uh, worried about uh, about about history, past, present, and future. But it's very different than speculative thinking about history. And and Rushdie reflecting in this book the realities of our world post 1989. I think a uh, relates very well to the kind of um, intellectual and social and political concerns that my book is is very much dealing with. Mm. You know, that's interesting. I I, I haven't read Joseph Anton yet, but I, I've seen uh, Rushdie speak about it. Uh, and he he talks about, he read an excerpt uh, from the book where he's, you know, he's in his home, basically in exile, and he, like, kind of imagines uh, the cause of, of, you know, these protests and this anger. And the way the, uh, the excerpt was written, it was, uh, you know, mirrored with, you know, the present day post 9-11, uh, you know, tension. And I, you know, I thought that that was really interesting that, you know, you have those historical connections there and this kind of like foreboding sense that uh, he was able to kind of, you know, not predict, but, re you know, reflect or mirror it or project it uh, yes. in his like personal struggle, at, you know, in the, uh, the, the late 70s and early 80s. I thought that was really interesting. Um, Indeed. But one, one book that I, I wanted you to speak to, and this is one that I've always... I've, I haven't read it in a couple of years, but I, you know, I've always found it fascinating, and uh, I know a lot of people find it interesting. Is Sebald's Austerlitz, and that's yes. you know, so, that's a book that you come you know back to several times throughout the throughout your book. Um, mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could maybe just talk about that a little bit about why you why you find that book just so like engaging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's a wonderful book. I think honestly, one of one of the greatest books of our time. Um, and it's great um, both because of uh, the wonderful story that um, the narrator is, is presenting us, a story of friendship, um, a story of a life shattered uh, because, of, because of the 20th century history, the way we know it. Um, not just the Holocaust, but also Holocaust and then uh, the Cold War and, and Europe during the Cold War. And then, you know, the years following 1989, because 
as only a few people uh, noted, uh, the book is really written from a perspective of post-1989 and the kind of world that begins to emerge uh, after the end of the Cold War. Um, but then Zebal, I think, also develops in this book a, a masterful a, a tone of writing, a masterful atmosphere of writing, um, really on the level of, of syntax and the ways in which you know different metaphors are aligned and, and brought together. So both in terms of form and content, I think Zebal created their a masterpiece. Um, one of the reasons I find the book so fascinating, uh, beyond the themes I just mentioned, is um, because of the implicit uh, story that uh, the novel uh, tells. So, if we're thinking about Jacques Austerlitz um, as embodying a the awful things humans did to each other uh, during the Holocaust and in similar cases that occurred before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. There is also at the same time um, a wonderful story, in my view, uh, about the capacity of humans uh, to engage in, in, in human action, in political action, uh, in meaningful ways. And thus also uh, an incredible story of what I call in the book futurity. And what I mean by that is that Jacques Austerlitz, um, while having suffered uh, the trauma of losing his parents, and while acknowledging the fact that his parents were killed during the Holocaust, at the same time, Jacques Austerlitz uh, also presents to us a, a story of survival. Jacques Austerlitz was able, because of actions taken by humans, to uh, avert the fate of many Jews who were killed during the Holocaust. And he was able to avert that fate only because of the capacity and the willingness of people to help children like him um, in what was called then the Kindertransport uh, to come into safety in Great Britain and, and elsewhere. So as we go through the story of Jacques Austerlitz in Zebald's novel, there is a, a, an implicit story that, uh, that this novel unfolds. And this is a story about uh, what happened because a, a group of people was able to come together and to bring uh, Jewish children uh, into safety, whereas many others living in Europe and elsewhere just watched from the side how uh, Jewish children and, 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 and Jewish people across Europe um, are being treated in the most inhumane manner. Uh, Zebal doesn't tell us the story of Kindertransport uh, and the story of this human action in a uh, pedagogical, uh, programmatic manner. It's not that he gives us there a sermon about human agency. Uh, rather, he presents to us what human agency looks like in a very implicit manner uh, and really counts on us, I think, uh, as readers to understand that beyond the story of trauma that the novel obviously tells, there's another important story um, that is a part of, of Austerlitz. And that is the story of our capacity as humans to do something uh, in, in our lives. Um, and you see the same thread I just described also in other elements of that novel, uh, throughout the novel. Uh, for example, uh, in the story of the way the novel deals with torture, with political torture, um, the way the Nazis or the SS uh, conducted it uh, in Brendong, in, in Belgium. 
I'm sure you remember the scene right at the beginning of the book where the narrator uh, goes to Brendonk and, and walks through um, the site uh, and is remembered of things he had read about the ways in which uh, the SS tortured people in Brendonk. Yet Zebal ties this story of torture uh, in the 1980s. In the late 1930s and then in the 1940s, he ties this story of torture to torture as such, torture as a problem that we're still facing uh, today. And it's impossible to read the novel um, just, um, you know, feeling appalled and distressed by how the SS tortured people in Brendonk. It's obvious when you read this section on torture that the problem of torture uh, is a problem we're facing today. Uh, and thus the book ties uh, the past to the present and I would say to the future as well because uh, reading the novel and, and being presented by the case of torture in Bandong, uh, I hope that many readers will think differently about uh, torture if they encounter cases of uh, political torture uh, in their own lives and, and the prospect of torture in the future. So in that, in that sense, the book continues to, to work uh, way beyond the historical uh, time and period uh, the book is dealing with. Hmm. Well, Dr. Eshel, maybe as a way to sort of conclude our discussion of your book, uh, I have one last question for you. And uh, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but, you know, recently or, you know, the past 10 years or so, you know, there's been sort of a move to kind of uh, to open up a you know a, a third road or a third option when it comes to to, to postmodernism in the academy. Um, and you know I've talked to several authors about the you know their fascinating books about alternatives to approaching the text. And yeah. you know that's something that that you talk about in the book. You know the hermeneutics of suspicion, symptomatic reading, which is something that. You know, you know, a lot of these theories and, you know, ideologies in a way, you know, engender. You know, if you're a Marxist, you're going to approach a text in a very specific way and you're going to be looking for very specific things. Um, and I was just wondering if do you see, uh, you know, this work, future, the concept Futurity, your book in gen- specifically, do you see this as, you know, an effort to kind of contribute to that movement to, you know, moving beyond uh like the anxiety of postmodernism and the you know the hermeneutics of suspicion, symptomatic reading, and such. Certainly, certainly that 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 is my my greatest hope uh, in conjunction with the book, uh, namely that um, we will uh, move beyond doing exclusively what I call in the book symptomatic reading. Um, so I don't think that we should just send, you know, Marxist literary criticism or Foucauldian literary criticism uh, or postcolonial literary criticism. We, we shouldn't relegate, you know, these approaches to literature and to the arts, to, you know, the archives of, of history or shouldn't, you know, exclude them from discourse. Uh, but I do hope that we will be able to expand um, uh, our variety of options or to expand our possible the horizon of our possibilities by also thinking about literature and the arts uh, in other ways, such as the way I present uh, in my book. 
so in my view, um, a very important uh, avenue of, of reading literature is by examining the ways in which it adds something uh, to our lives. And that something is a consideration, for example, of human agency, of action, of ethical responsibility, of political responsibility, uh, etc. But that's only one, uh, one option. Um, I think the problem with, with postmodernism um, was that uh, at a certain point it, it began to understand itself as the only viable option <laughs> of pursuing humanistic uh, scholarship. And um, while criticizing at the beginning, you know, the, the hegemony of previous discourses, uh, it then evolved into becoming itself a hegemonial uh, discourse. So my wish is that uh, with books like mine and obviously uh, other books, we will understand that there are many other ways of thinking about um, about literature and the arts uh, besides what we got accustomed to do uh, over the last two or three decades, namely turning time and again to the discourses of you know postcolonial studies, psychoanalysis, a post-Marxist analysis in all its different iterations, gender discourse in all its different iterations, etc., etc., all of which I think suffer at times from what I call symptomatic reading, and that is reading literature or observing a, a artworks only through the ways in which they reflect symptoms of all kinds of social illnesses. I think a there is, at the moment at least, too much of a hegemony of this approach, namely symptomatic reading in, in the academy, especially in the humanities. And my hope is that moving forward, you know, these important discourses will remain there, viable, available to students, but they, they will give up their claim to hegemony and, and, and claim to power. Um, that I think is, is something quite important and needed because I think uh, one of the reasons that, you know, for, for the crisis in the humanities or what many people see as the crisis in the humanities at the, at the moment is um, that our students, um, you know, read great novels or watch wonderful films or observe great works of, of, of visual arts um, and get to hear from many of their professors and teachers that the only viable way to engage these works of art is by observing their symptoms. Uh, I think this is a very limited and limiting um, perspective uh, on on the humanities, uh, and I think it's time that we broadened the scope and expanded the horizon. Mm. Well, that's well said. Um, Dr. Eschel, uh, as a way to kind of conclude our conversation, I was wondering if maybe you would want to tell the, uh, the listeners about anything that you're working on currently. I know this book, that we're, Futurity, that we're discussing right now isn't going to be published until uh, January? Yes. January. So this is forthcoming. Um, but are you working on anything currently that, that you would like the listeners to know about? Yes, certainly, certainly. So uh, I continue to work on, on contemporary literature and, and the arts, uh, and in fact, moving from this book uh, onward, I hope to do more work on the visual arts in the future. 
Uh, and at the moment, I entertain the idea of writing a book on um, the book of Job and the way in which the book of Job uh, continues to uh, serve as a source of, of inspiration for writers, for filmmakers, for artists, um, and the ways in which the, the myth of, of Job and the book of Job may also serve um, as a way of thinking through ethics today, um, a, a way to understand uh, ethical thinking today. Um, and there are many examples, you know, I could give you uh, now from Philip Roth's Nemesis um, uh, uh, to other books that, that, that I could mention. Um, so I hope that uh, in the next years I will be able to, to conclude uh, a study dedicated to Job's presence in our lives. Oh, well, that sounds that sounds fascinating. Uh, well, Dr. Eschel, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I'd like to thank you for the interview and for the opportunity to answer some of your questions. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to thoughts and reactions by readers uh, to my book. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Eschel, and I hope you join in next time when I'll be speaking with Stacey Alimo about her book, Bodily Natures, Science, Environment, and the Material Self. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.